Might you continue to testify of the joy of marriage and the joy of that relationship that the Lord has brought. But I will also say that there was something missing a bit as we were there. We love marriage. We love each other. We love the Lord. But we didn't have the body of Christ there in its fullness with us. That is this local body. Well, we're glad, I guess, that you weren't there for the 10 days. <laughs> but we rejoice to be back and to, be, and, and to realize how much the body of Christ has impacted our marriage over the years. This one for the past 10 and the body of Christ for many years. And just to remind you all, all of, the, of the impact that you have in the lives of others. We are to be a body. That is who we are. And marriage itself, as beautiful and special as it is, is really only a subset of the body of Christ. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And as you stand, I just want to let you know it's a great joy to be back with you. Many of you know that we were had the privilege, at least and I, of spending our 25th anniversary in Hawaii. It's a rough life, but somebody has to go there. And yet much more than the place, just the, the encouragement of spending 10 days together. I don't think we'd spent that much time together just by ourselves since our honeymoon. And it was a joy for us to realize and to partake of the sweetness of marriage after 25 years, realizing that really the time was much better than our honeymoon. We enjoyed it. The honeymoon was great. It was wonderful. But we were young, foolish, more sinful than we are now. And to have 25 years of refinement and, and, and working through issues and then to be able to spend time together enjoying the fruit of that labor and the fruit of the work that the Lord had done was sweet. And so for you younger couples who are working your way towards 25, might you know that it is sweet and gets sweeter still. And for those of you who are going 25, that's nothing. We're way past that. Might you continue to testify of the joy of marriage and the joy of that relationship that the Lord has brought. But I will also say that there was something missing a bit as we were there. We love marriage. We love each other. We love the Lord. But we didn't have the body of Christ there in its fullness with us. That is this local body. Well, we're glad, I guess, that you weren't there for the 10 days. <laughs> But we rejoice to be back and to be and, and to realize how much the body of Christ has impacted our marriage over the years. This one for the past 10 and the body of Christ for many years. And just to remind you all, all of, the, of the impact that you have in the lives of others. We are to be a body. That is who we are. And marriage itself, as beautiful and special as it is, is really only a subset of the body of Christ. And so it's a joy to be with you. It's a joy to have shared some of that with you. And I pray that as we continue on in marriage and continue on together, that that joy will only grow more sweet. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated. Now the first sentence of paragraph two of the Declaration of Independence states this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, this is perhaps the greatest statement ever made in the history of human nation building. And even this great document has a fatal flaw. You see, happiness is not given a specific definition. And thus, it is open to disastrous and conflicting explanations. For you see, when the definition of the pursuit of happiness is left to the depraved hearts of men, it can never be truly fulfilled and will always be perverted. Thankfully, we, the citizens of a greater kingdom, have a greater manifesto, a truly divine document which guarantees the pursuit of happiness, but carefully defines the means by which that happiness is pursued and found. We've been studying this divine manifesto as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've already discussed various aspects of this happiness or blessedness, as the Bible calls it. We've seen how it is fulfilled, and today we come to the fourth of these beatitudes, these blessed aspects of being involved in the kingdom. And really what we have before us this morning is another shocking message. And the shocking message of this next beatitude is that true happiness can only come through true righteousness. And that righteousness is both defined by God and granted by God himself. Perhaps we could say it this way. The American Constitution guarantees the citizens the right to the pursuit of happiness, which may or may not have the desired result. That is, pursuing the happiness may not bring it. However, the Sermon on the Mount guarantees the right to the pursuit of holiness, which will, in fact, always bring happiness. So what we'll see this morning is that true righteousness is an essential component of the kingdom of God, and it is guaranteed to those who passionately seek for it. Again, true righteousness is an essential component of the kingdom of God, and it is guaranteed to those who passionately seek for it. Now, before we dive into this fourth beatitude, let's remember where we have come. We've already seen that in the kingdom, blessedness, that is the joyful contentedness and fulfillment that come from the favor and, and grace of God bestowed upon us that we do not deserve, that blessedness comes to those first who are poor in spirit. And we would see these as really moving in progression. You cannot enter into the kingdom unless you recognize your bankruptcy, that you have nothing to offer, that your righteousness is worthless. You cannot enter in unless you are poor in spirit. And then as you progress in the kingdom, you are ever increasingly reminded of the fact that you on your own have nothing to give. And you become ever increasingly grateful, ever more humble before a holy God at what he has chosen to give you and the blessedness that he has provided for you and giving you his word and giving you his spirit and granting you access to his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They are the ones who are truly happy, those who are humble. So perhaps we would say happy are the humble. We've also seen, however, that those who, are, those who mourn are blessed. And this seems, of course, counterintuitive to us. It would seem that we would need to be laughing and, and, and having our joy or, or exercising that in some kind of mirth, perhaps, in order to truly be blessed. But no, our beatitude tells us, the scripture tells us that blessed are those who mourn. And that doesn't mean those who walk around with prune faces, right? Those who constantly look like they're sucking on lemons. 
The idea of mourning is mourning over sin. You see, the world loves to sin. And it loves its sin and finds its pleasure in sin. But believers do not do this. They hate sin. And they mourn over it. They grieve over the fact that that very sin is what caused their Savior to go to the cross. And a mourning over sin, a recognition of the grievous nature of sin, again, is necessary to enter into the kingdom and increases throughout our time in the kingdom. We hate sin ever increasingly. We grieve over it more and more. Instead of Instead of cultivating sin and hiding it in our hearts in ways that, that bring us pleasure, our bitterness, our, our lack of forgiveness, our pornography, our, our lustfulness, whatever it might be, instead of doing that, we, we, we grieve. And because we grieve over our sin, we long to put it away and to be forgiven for it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then we've seen also, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Instead of those who exert their own will and their own forcefulness, dominating others in order to get what they want, True blessedness in the kingdom comes from those who yield. They yield to the will of God over them. They confess that He is their King and their Lord, and they humble themselves underneath His mighty will that they might live out His will in proper measure towards others, always exhibiting the proper amount of force in order to accomplish the will of God in the lives of others and in the kingdom. Never improperly exerting their own desires and forcing those or pressing those upon others. Instead, Gently bringing the truth of God to bear in the lives of others. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are gentle. And when we begin to exert those, to, to, to have those characteristics flow out of our lives, it is then that we have an increasing desire for righteousness. It is then that, that our, the, the arrogance of our hearts is being burned away so that we can see the need for it and we can have a desire to pursue this true righteousness which makes up the kingdom of God. Because that's the nature of our fourth beatitude. Drop your eyes down to the text, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they will be satisfied. Did you come this morning wanting satisfaction? Are you dissatisfied with your life? Are you unhappy? Are there certain areas that you just wish were better and you're wondering why your life isn't all that you would have? It's because you're not holy. Any place in your life where you aren't holy, you will not, cannot ever be happy. Holiness solves everything. That's the nature of our beatitude. Because holiness is the nature of of God. You may always track down your lack of satisfaction, your unhappiness, as it were, to a lack of holiness. But the joy is that that can be remedied because as you pursue true righteousness, our text tells us that you will always be satisfied. You will be fulfilled. And so, therefore, why would we not, why should we not pursue this holiness with reckless Abandoned. Well, that's our desire. That's the nature of the kingdom. So let's define first this hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is it? Because we have some metaphors used here. We have hunger and thirst, and we're not talking about food or not talking about physical food. So what are we talking about? First, a reminder again of this word blessed. It is, it simply means happy, highly favored. And we've kind of, we've kind of brought that definition, a biblical definition to it, a joyful contentedness and fulfillment which flows from being the recipient of God's loving, kind, unmerited favor. That's true blessedness. It's always in relationship to God. It's always as a result of His work on our behalf. And it's a fulfillment that comes from, from everything that surrounds the nature of who God is, His character. This is His kingdom. 
And we have been graced or, or blessed to have His favor poured out upon us. But it says here, those who have that kind of contentedness and fulfillment, those who are tr- the true recipients of God's loving, kind, unmerited favor, they will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And these are basic words. We understand them. To hunger is to have the need to eat, to have the desire to fill that which is empty, our stomachs. If you're a teenager here this morning, you understand this maybe better than most of us. The desire to be hungry is constantly with you. My son wanders through the kitchen and things disappear. There's not nearly as much as there was before. Why? Because he's hungry and he fulfills his hunger in the kitchen. Now, hunger and thirst, we understand that as well. To feel the need to drink, to have dryness, to to desire to have that thirst quenched. And in fact, of of the two, really probably thirst for us when when it comes to a, a true need or desire, it comes to the fore more quickly. That is, we can go for a long time without food but we can go for only a very short time without water or something to slake our thirst. And if you've ever been truly thirsty, you've been camping or perhaps you've been out. I used to live in in California and we did a couple of expeditions out to the, uh, uh, you know, to the plains and the deserts down below, down below the mountains there to death Valley. And and you find out very quickly that if you don't bring enough water that you, you begin to feel that desperate need to have your body refreshed. Well, that's the idea here. That's why these words are being used. And really the most fundamental things in life. You can have a lot of other things, and if you don't have them, well, you might desire them, but if you don't get them, it's not that big big a deal. Well, if you don't get food, you'll die. If you don't get water, you'll die. These are the two very basic needs. We need air as well. But of course, if we don't have food or water, then we can't benefit much from air. So these, these particular, this, these words, hunger and thirst, are used by the Spirit of God for a particular reason, because they strike us at the very base of who we are. You know what it is to be hungry, and you know the desire to fulfill that. You know what it is to be thirsty physically, and you know the desire to fulfill that. Well, this isn't physical hunger and thirst. It says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These words being used as a metaphor to drive home the importance of being righteous. Those who are blessed are those who have a desperate need for, who feel their need to be fulfilled in the area of righteousness. And again, righteousness is not some, it's not humanly defined. It's not simple morality. It's not, you know, doing some good things. Righteousness is that which conforms to the law of God, which essentially are all those things which flow out of the nature of God, for that's what God's law is. God's law is an expression of his very nature. And so to be righteous, and in fact, to be entirely righteous, would be to conform perfectly to the character and nature of God. Again, it's not simply a few good things we might do, kind of a code of morality that we need to have. It is literally our need to reflect, to to have our lives and character be absolutely conformed to the image of God himself. So the object of our hunger and thirst, righteousness, indicates that the use by the use of these words, that this righteousness is essential. In fact, it is part of our very life. So what is it? Let's define it before we work into ways that we can pursue it. First, it is to recognize God's perfect standard. You cannot hunger and thirst for that which you do not recognize that you need. And that's why it's different from food and drink. Because you come into the world... And, and if you've had the experience of watching a little one come into the world, I've had that privilege twice. The first thing that they do as they come in is they begin to scream. Why? 
well, they're probably pretty unhappy from being removed from the, the seemingly safe and, and, and uh, warm place where they were, but also they come in with a desperate need, the need to eat, or they will not survive. You don't feed a little one early, obviously, that little one will die. And so as they come in screaming out for what they, crying out for what they need, which is instantly nourishment, food, and drink, as it were, Right? They recognize from the very beginning, we recognize our need for food and drink. But we do not, apart from God, as we will see, recognize our need for righteousness. So we have to have that brought to us. Because we are sinful, because we are dead in trespasses and sins, we do not recognize innately our need for righteousness. In fact, it's just the opposite. We want to pursue unrighteousness. That's the way we come into the world. We are bent away from the very thing we need. Imagine... If a little baby or if little babies were born into the world without the desire to eat, and in fact, this does on occasion happen. It's, a, it's trying to, to then force or trying to live in such a way as to have that little one eat, constantly trying to remind them yourself would literally be impossible and that little one would die. If they were not born with that innate desire, they would not fulfill it and they would die. Well, It really is true for us as we come into the world. Apart from that, we literally are dead spiritually. And so we must first recognize that God's perfect standard is righteousness, that we must be righteous and that we are not. Acts 17.31 speaks of the way that God will judge the world. What is his standard? And Paul says this when he's speaking to the Athenians on the Acropolis there. He says, because he, that is God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There is a perfect standard. God will judge us according to that perfect standard, and it is his righteousness, not ours. It is his definition of what is truly holy that flows from his character. That is the standard by which he will judge, and we have all fallen short. That's the second part of understanding or, or hungering and thirst for, thirsting for righteousness is that we must confess that we have fallen short of that standard. We have to recognize it. That's what confess means. It means to actually acknowledge that we, have, that we have fallen short and to agree with God concerning the character or the nature of our condition. In this case, that we have fallen short of his perfect righteousness and that we deserve all everything that would happen as a result of that. The eternal hell that God would bring to us, will bring to us, all of, the, all of the consequences of that, to confess that we have fallen short of the standard, is to agree with God that we deserve His punishment because we are not righteous as He is. Psalm 32.5 speaks of this kind of acknowledgement, this confession. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, it is our nature to hide our sin, which is essentially to deny it, to deny its seriousness, to set it in a corner and say, it's not really that bad, and so I'm not going to bring it out. Instead, to confess, to recognize that we have fallen short of God's standards, to fully open up before the Lord to say, I've seen my fallenness, I've seen that I do not live according to your standard, that I... I in my heart, I do not desire your holy standard, and I confess that. Psalm 51, 2. David cries out, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. What is iniquity? What is sin? It is falling short of God's perfect righteousness. You know the verse. Romans three twenty three is incredibly clear. For all have sinned, and then the definition of sin comes after that, and fallen short of his glory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us 
lives up to God's perfect righteousness, which is his glory. So David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, says David, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, we covered much of this when we talked about being poor in spirit, but I want to remind you that you will never hunger and thirst for righteousness if you haven't agreed with God that you aren't. And if you come here this morning with some form of your own self-righteousness, I'll do some of this on my own at least. At least I, I come with some amount of goodness, which everyone in the world apart from Christ believes that they are good in some way. There is something in them that is good. It is part of the depravity of human nature that they will always believe that there is something in them that should be seen as good. And yet there is none. There is nothing that you have brought this morning that is that conforms to the perfect standard of God's holiness. Have you yet recognized that? You will not hunger and thirst for righteousness until you have become poor in spirit, until you have mourned over your sin, which is what drives confession, until you have humbled your will and been gentle in the sight of God. The Bible speaks of sin in terms of trying to quench our thirst from the wrong fountain. See, lest you, lest you think, well, I'm kind of mixing metaphors here. There's sin, and then there's fulfillment, and there's hungering and thirsting, but how does that relate to hating our sin? Well, the Bible really defines our sin as seeking to slake our hunger and thirst to satisfy it in the wrong place. Jeremiah 2.13, God says this through Jeremiah, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God defines rebellion against him, a lack of righteousness, as rejecting the very one who could provide the need that we have. The fountain, it says here, of living waters. We are in need of having our thirst quenched. It is only God that can do this. And when we set him aside and try to find our fulfillment, to try to have our thirst and by also, and through our passage and in other scriptural passages, by, by analogy also, our hunger, when we try to find our satisfaction in something other than God, that is the ultimate in sin. Because we are stepping away from the very one who can and does provide everything we need. It is sin to hew for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water, because what we are saying is, God, your righteousness, your holiness, your provision is insufficient. I will find it on my own. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We need to confess that. We need to recognize that that is true, understanding our condition, cry out to a holy God and agree with him that this is who we truly are. And then this, this hungering and thirsting for righteousness is too long to desire above all things to be righteous, to think and to live according to God's holy character, for that is true righteousness. To think and to live according to God's holy character. You see, our recognition of God's holy, perfect standard and our utter bankruptcy should, must cause us to long to be like the one we fall so short of. We are not to turn away in discouragement, to wallow in our own inadequacy or become consumed with attempts at self-righteousness. Instead, we should cultivate the desire to be righteous, which will drive us towards the fulfillment of that very desire. As in a normal human, there's an innate desire to eat and an enjoyment of what is eaten. So the true believer is to have the desire for righteousness and to rejoice in the righteousness of which they partake. 
Now, again, the problem is, is that we are like the cancer patient. One who is sick and in the middle of chemotherapy, the normal desire to eat is overwhelmed by sickness. And if they're not careful, they'll die from lack of nourishment. Because they're not driven by that desire to eat. It's been overridden by the, by the, this, by the condition that they are in, by, by the sickness that eats away at them. Well, this is true of the believer. The sickness of sin makes it difficult at times to feel the need for righteousness. So this need must be objectively understood and diligently pursued. That's why I bring it to you this morning. That's why the Bible, that's why Matthew brings it to us, this desperate need, because we will not recognize it on our own. You see, we don't want to be holy. We want to be happy. But what we don't recognize is that in order to be happy, we must be holy. Now, just to kind of finish out this definition of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, remember that starving people want only food. Someone who is dying of thirst will not accept some other substitute. So the man is crawling through the desert looking for the oasis, and you come up and say, hey, here's a great new TV program. Let me show you that. This will be great. Hey, here's some new clothes. Why don't you put on a new shirt? Clean yourself up a little bit. Stop crawling around and, you know, the person who was dying of thirst is going to look at you like you're insane. What I need is something to drink and they will do anything necessary to get it. Is that true for you when it comes to righteousness? What are you playing with? What are you dressing yourself up with? What other things are you seeking that are not the righteousness of God? They cannot satisfy. And the more that you understand who God is and your own character and nature and the need that you have for righteousness, the more that you will be satisfied with nothing less. You will begin to hunger and thirst. That will be awakened in you. And that's my goal this morning. That's the goal of this text. That's what Jesus was doing to his audience as they sat. What they wanted was the food that he could bring physically, the healing that he could bring physically. And he's saying, you need more than that. You need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's your true need. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.